Thanks, Bev. Great to have that uh, reading before us. If you can keep that open, uh, that'll be really helpful as we go through our sermon this morning. Now, if you've just joined us uh, for the first time, you've caught us in the middle of a series looking at Paul's letter to the church in Rome. And Paul is sort of midway through an argument, and I'm going to pray, and then I want to present to you the last bit of the argument that takes us into the bit that was read today uh, that we're going to focus on. So let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you uh, that you are here with us by your Holy Spirit. Thanks, Father, that this word is therefore living and active. And we pray, Father, that we might understand it this morning and live changed lives because of what we learn. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, well, here is where the argument was left off last week. Last week, we put uh, front and centre uh, the goodness of God and his grace. And we see in chapter 5, verse 20, these words. The law was brought in so that trespasses might increase, but where sin increased, grace increased all the more. In other words, God was very good to us. Sin was on the rise, but so was God's grace. So there's a question that Paul imagines somebody could ask. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning that grace may increase? Now, I'm not sure that that's the first thing that pops into your mind, but this is the question that we're going to focus on. And I think the best way to say it is this. If we're saved by faith when we were unworthy of being saved, then you might think to yourself, hey, this sin thing isn't such a big problem for God. okay? Because in our minds, unless the Bible talks to us about grace, what can happen is we think, okay, I want to get right with God. What will I do? Well, I'll tidy myself up a bit. I'll see if I can have a week where I'm sinning a little bit less. And then I'll present myself to God and say, God, I've tried really hard this week. Would you accept me? Now, that's not how salvation works. We're told that God saved us when we were still his enemies, when we hadn't done anything to deserve his favor. That's when he saved us. And if you're told you're saved by faith, not by working really hard, you might think, cool, well, it doesn't matter then. If God loved me when I was a sinner, why do I need to stop sinning? I could sin more and God would just pour out more grace. Do you see how it works? If that's the question, Paul has an answer for us. He just says this, by no means. That's the next thing he says. That's a silly argument. Let me show you why it's silly using an analogy. We're going to go to uh, the Philippines. And the Philippines is on the Pacific Ring of Fire, which means they do earthquakes and volcanoes. It also is wonderfully, just because they want the whole trifecta, um, they actually have hurricanes and and cyclones and those sort of things there as well. Uh, There was a massive cyclone that went through there a while ago, uh, the biggest one ever recorded, the strongest one ever recorded, called Yolanda. And uh, the winds at some point there were recorded as being up to 350 kilometres an hour. Now, guys, that's inconceivable, okay? Literally, that's the fastest ever recorded, ever recorded in a hurricane. Now, if you think that came through here in Oran Park, it would devastate our houses, right? But imagine if they were made of bamboo with corrugated iron on top. Can you imagine the devastation? 10,000 people died. So when there are these big tragedies, right, the world responds and it pours aid into the country where there's been tragedy, right? We see this happen with the, um, the tsunamis and various other things. When there's a big world problem, huge amounts of world aid pour in. So here's how that logic would work, the logic of how about I sin more 
that grace may increase. Well, when there's a disaster, aid comes in. If there's more of a disaster, won't we get more aid? So, theoretically, shall we wreak havoc that aid may increase? Do you see the logic? If the world's going to pour out aid into our, into, our, into our country, if there's a terrible tragedy, maybe we should just make tragedies happen and then we'll get more aid. It's crazy, right? It's actually immoral. There's a fundamental immorality in it. It's not a right thing to do. And so Paul's saying that you say I want to sin that there might be more grace is immoral. But he has even more to say about why this is a bad argument. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. Now, in order to get it to us, I'm going to tell you a little bit about myself because it's Father's Day, you know, so why not? Um, So uh, a while ago, I chose uh, Liverpool as, uh, as my football side, right? And um, I'm a bit of a fan. Are there any Liverpool fans out there? I see one hand. That's good. And a second one over there. Fantastic. Okay, very good. And the rest of you can join Liverpool later. Okay, that's good. Um, so here, here's the thing, right? I, I like Liverpool. I have, I have a jersey. That's good. I have the scarf. It's really important, obviously, that um, we don't just uh, wrap it around our necks. We need to hold it up as well. So I've, I've, you know, that's important. Uh, I, know, I know our song, you know, We'll Never Walk Alone, all those things. So I've known it for a while, all that stuff, right? All right, that's great. But this week I did something exciting. I decided to join the Liverpool Football Club. Officially join it, right? Now that's fantastic, right? I've liked Liverpool for a while, but now I've joined Liverpool. So what, what happens? Well, it, it, I, the public already knew I liked Liverpool. Now you guys do too, because I wore, I, wore I wore the stuff, right? But here's the amazing thing. When I joined Liverpool officially, now they know that I like them. Isn't this wonderful? So I'm on their membership list, so that makes me feel much better, right? They know I care for them, which is fantastic. On top of that, because I'm a member, benefits follow to me. It's fantastic. I'm now a member of Liverpool, so I get discounts on merchandise, right? I might, I might be able to jump up the queue if I ever wanted to go and see a, a game. Benefits come to me because I've joined in with them. And so they won last night. Go the rest. And so I feel happy today, right? My life is lined up with the club, you see? And if we have a bad day, I feel sad, all those sorts of things, right? My history is their, their history. It's fantastic. There's a weeness to me in Liverpool. It's fantastic. Now you're going, right, we've put up with enough of that. Get back to the Bible. What, what is going on here? Why are you talking to me about football? Well, here's the thing. Have a look with me at verses 2 to 4. Here's what Paul writes. We shouldn't keep on sinning that grace may increase. He says, by no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who are baptised into Christ Jesus were baptised into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. You see, for the Christian, not only have we gone public with our faith, but we have been joined in to Jesus. We've been joined into Jesus and it's through baptism that we're joined. Baptism is how we sign up to all the benefits and the story and the history of Jesus. So what, why is baptism here? How did baptism assume such importance in the church? Well, I want to show you, it's actually been important right from the start. You know, Jesus gives the Great Commission, 
And he says, go into all the world and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. So baptism, right there at the front. What about when the church starts in the book of Acts? The Holy Spirit's poured out. They go, oh, we're sinners. What should we do? And Peter says to them, hey, everybody, repent and be baptized and you will receive the Holy Spirit. Or what about with the, uh, the Ethiopian eunuch? He's riding along in his carriage, okay, and he's reading the Bible. And then Philip runs up alongside him. Do you remember this story? And he goes, hey, man, what are you reading? And he goes, I'm reading this, but I don't understand it. Why don't you come up and explain it? So he hops in, explains about Jesus. Fantastic. And then the guy says, hey, now I understand Jesus. Here's some water. What would stop me from being baptized? It's the next thing that he does. Or maybe uh, we've got Paul. Paul sees a vision of Jesus, and then Ananias comes and finds him, and he says, Paul, you've heard about Jesus you will receive the Holy Spirit and you should be baptized. They just follow together really naturally. Or maybe it's Cornelius, a Gentile. He's taught about Jesus, the Holy Spirit comes, and he goes, what should stop this man from being baptized? So they're baptized. Here's the thing I want you to see. There's a fundamental connection between faith and baptism. Now, why baptism? Where did that come from? How did baptism exist? Well, the Jews had laws about washing, about being made clean. And in Jerusalem, uh, they found a whole bunch of these things called mikvah, that's your Hebrew word for the day, which is a little bathy thing. That's the technical term, okay? It's a little bath. So let's fill it with water and see what they did. In order to come to the temple, what they would do is they would go down into the water and a, a sinful person they would wash themselves and they would come up out of the water, made new, purified, ready to go into the temple, washed clean. The Christian said, this is really helpful. Okay, What we want to do is we want to say to you, when you make a decision to join God's family, what we want to do is we want you to go down into the water and be buried with Jesus, join his story, die to your old life, And then we want you to be raised up. That's unfortunate. We're going to watch it again. Um, Then we want you to be raised up so that you will be a new person. So there's the old. And then he says, buried and raised. So the Christian took this idea and said, we will die with Christ symbolically and then be raised to a new life with Jesus. Now, I don't know if you guys uh, watched Forrest Gump the other day. Anyone? Nobody. That's okay. It's just me. Uh, for things that go together, there's a wonderful turn of phrase. I think faith and baptism go together. They just naturally hang out together. And in uh, Forrest Gump, he says, they were like peas and carrots. They just go together. Faith and baptism go together. What happens, though, is that in our day and age, we have split them apart. We've split them apart, and we've created an artificial divide between faith and baptism, which means that we have unusual questions about baptism, and we have differing emphases on baptism. What should we do with it? Fundamentally, because we've separated the two of them. There should be a natural connection, and it shouldn't be optional. The reality is they are part of the unity of the early church. Have a look with me at this, uh, this passage here in Ephesians chapter 4. Make every effort, Paul says, he's writing to the church, 
to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. What's he saying? Here's the thing. Church, you're you're united. We've all been baptized into one baptism. We were all baptized into the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. All of us were. And so we're united in this one baptism. And so here's the thing. To be a Christian in the New Testament is to be baptized. There aren't any people kicking around in the New Testament who are unbaptized. That's just not what happened. Because faith and baptism go together like peas and carrots. Now, why does that matter? Well, it matters because when we're baptized, we're joined into the Jesus story. So Jesus died, he was crucified, he was buried, he was raised, and he had a brand new life. He was never going to die again. What this passage here says, as Paul preaches it through, is that the Christian has now joined Jesus' story. And so he says, we can see through baptism that we have died with him. We have been crucified with Jesus. We have been buried. We have been raised. And we have new life in Jesus. How has that happened? Because we've been joined into the Jesus story by baptism and faith. So our baptism into Jesus' death involves us in Jesus' destiny too. His history and his future are ours because we joined the club. We signed up with Jesus by faith and baptism. It's worth saying it isn't experiential. So has anyone been baptized here? Did you die? Okay, right. No, you didn't. That's good because that's why you're here. But spiritually, you died with Jesus in that process. So it's not like it's a dangerous thing to be baptized. Okay, Don't be afraid. But spiritually, you're joined into the death of Jesus so that we might leave our old life behind. Here's how he says it in verses 6 and 7. Have a look with me. For we know that our old self was crucified with him, so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin, because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. See, death dethrones Sin. What does that mean? When you and I sin, there's a price to be paid. The Bible says, if you sin, you deserve to die. So while I'm still alive, the threat of death always hangs over me from my sin. If I've died with Jesus, I'm rubbing it out. It's been rubbed out. There is no threat against me. Because the price of sin is paid, you see? So death dethrones sin. It's not going to be my master anymore. However, the position of Lord is now open. If sin isn't going to be my master, who is going to be my master? And Paul will continue on that and tell us some more about it. Uh, Now, I'm not very musical. My my claim to fame is that uh, I was asked to stop playing the recorder in year three. True. That's really what happened. Okay. And, and if you look at this uh, instrument here, Cam, I'll be very careful, all right? Uh, right now, what, what is this instrument doing? Fearing for its life, that's right. That, that is what it's... Now, but, but, but what's it doing? What's it contributing to the service? 
Nothing. It's ready to be used, but doesn't have any usefulness in its own right. It's asking for someone to play it, yeah? It's at the disposal of someone with talent, who is not me. And I'm very thankful for, uh, for Cam, who's, uh, who's playing it. Uh, Joy, I didn't even bother to sit down at the piano. There's too many keys there. It's very scary, okay? But here's the thing. Instruments don't do anything on their own. They're at the disposal of the musician. Straightforward. Have a look at verses 11 to 14. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer every part of yourself to him, as an instrument of righteousness. For sin shall no longer be your master, because you're not under law, but under grace. Here's the thing, church. Don't get played by sin. Don't get played by sin. Do you see this, this beautiful emphasis here? The change is, it's about making an offer to God. It's not just about striving not to sin. I think this is so important to see. It says, do not offer yourself, any part of yourself, as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness. So we are not the people then who say, hey, I'm at the disposal of my instincts and affections. I'm going to let sin reign in my body. That's not the Christian. Instead, what we're going to do is we're going to make a different offer. We're going to say, God, here I am. Use me. My body is at your disposal to be used for righteous things, for things that are good and pure and true and right. Use me, God. That's so different, isn't it? Not just not sinning, but putting ourselves at the disposal of God. So we offer ourselves to God. That's the posture of the Christian. And we offer every part. You see what it says there? Offer every part of yourself to him. Now, are there parts of yourself that you know you're not offering to God? I'm going to suspect that there are. Just like me, you will have parts where you sin. And we sin in parts that aren't submitted to God. And so what we want to do is we want to offer every part to him. And maybe part of our repentance is saying, God, I see this part of me that is not submitted to you. Help me hand it over. So here's what I found useful recently, is what if I start my day with a prayer that puts that front and center? Now, this is from the Book of Common Prayer, an Anglican book, nice. You can use any prayer you want. But here's a prayer. It says this, Lord God, almighty and everlasting Father, you've brought us safely to this new day. Preserve us with your mighty power, that we may not fall into sin, nor be overcome by adversity, and, this is the bit I really like, in all we do, direct us to the fulfilling of your purpose through Jesus Christ our Lord. Do you see the difference? God, not just let me not sin today, but I'm at your disposal. I'm your agent in the world. What would you do through me? Open hands for today as I put my life in your hands. Do you see the difference? I think this is really exciting. And I'd like you to think about what parts of our life make it hard for us to offer everything 
to him. Well, the argument continues. Paul's imagining having an argument with someone who's objecting as he goes through, and you're probably getting, you're getting used to this. In verse 14, he says, For sin shall no longer be your master, because you're not under the law, but under grace. Paul's imagined opposition then springs up and says, What then? Shall we sin because we're not under law, but under grace? Now, guys, this is question number two. This is what we're going to focus on. Can I just have a little moment with you? I don't reckon we think this, okay? This isn't our natural question. We don't go, oh, we're under grace, not law. Perhaps we can sin some more. I don't think we think like this. But Paul imagines a group of people who would think that way and go, well, if there's no control from the law, we could do anything. And he offers the same answer. Don't do it. By no means. Why does he say that? In order to understand his why, we have to look at who is the new master in our life. And to do that, we need to understand a little bit about slaves. The ancient world was filled with slaves. And they were always owned by a master. So here's the thing. We, we think to ourselves, hey, I work nine to five. I'm working like a slave for my boss, right? But you know what? You go home and you have a weekend. These guys had no downtime. There was no time that was me time. There was only ever slave time. You're always at the disposal of your master. And Paul's going to argue human beings are naturally slaves to something. They're always obeying something. And so he says that we are slaves to whoever we obey. We're slaves to whoever we obey. All of us are slaves. So here's his argument. Now, we could read through the passage, but I want to do it visually for you and just show you how it works. Paul, in the next little passage, talks about the old life, the change that has happened, and then the new life that Christians have. It's absolutely essential that you guys get this. We, if you're a Christian today, you are not living your old life any longer. Something happened. Have a listen to the differences between the old and the new life. So he says, we used to be slaves to sin, and as slaves to sin, we were heading on the direction to death. But now we're slaves to obedience that leads in the opposite direction, to righteousness. He says we've been set free from sin so that we can become slaves to righteousness. He said you used to offer yourself as slaves to impurity. You just kept doing it again and again and again. And he says, but now we're free so that we can offer ourselves as slaves to righteousness that leads to holiness. Something different, a different destiny. We were slaves to sin, which led to shame and death. Guys, here's the thing. I think I said this to you last time I talked about sin. But here's the thing. Sin offers you a sugar-coated lie that you'll feel better if you do it. It's a lie, and you know it, don't you? You don't ever finish having sin and go, that worked out perfectly. I feel so much better about myself as a human being. That never happens, does it, church? It's a lie every single time. And so Paul simply says, he says, look, you used to be slaves to sin, and it always led to shame. Always led to shame. And not only shame, but death. Christians, you have a better hope. You have a better hope. But now... But now, God has intervened. He's done something different. But now, you've been set free from sin 
and your slaves to God, which will lead to holiness, which will lead to something even more amazing, life eternal. So it's saying that we used to be slaves to sin. We were set free. But see, the way, the way freedom works for us, <laughs> we go, I'm free. There are now no constraints on me. That's what we want. No constraints. And God says, you're not free from any constraints. You're free from slavery to sin, and you're set free to be slaves to righteousness. You're always going to be a slave to something, but one of them is going to eat you for breakfast, and the other will give you eternal life. The Deuteronomy passage that that was read for us, right? Choose life. Choose life. That was what set was before the, uh, before the Israelites. And it wasn't a radical decision. Which will you pick? Death or life? Don't take too long, guys. It's not difficult, is it? Choose life. And so that's why we see this beautiful summary. Romans 6.23 is one of these wonderful verses. And uh, if it's not already underlined in your church Bible, feel free to write all over it and underline it so that somebody else will find this verse in their Bibles. You should have this in your heads. It says in 6.23, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. You and I were earning death. That was the coins we were being paid in. By sinning, we were earning death. But God intervened with a happy birthday for you and gives us the gift of eternal life when we didn't deserve it. That's the beauty of the gospel. And there's only one master who is for you, right? You can let sin be your master and it'll kill you, or you can go with God and he's for you and he will give you eternal life. That's a beautiful choice. So what have we seen? We've seen... Uh, at least three things here. You and I died with Jesus when we were included in him. By our baptism, we were included into Jesus. Christianity is about offering our lives to Jesus, saying, here it is, God, take it from me. And Christianity is defined by who we are obeying, who we're obeying. And you might go, that's a great sermon, Stuart. I, I, I like that a lot. Tomorrow, I'm going to make sure I don't ever sin again. Sadly, that's not true, is it? Not going to happen like that. And so we need to know Christians will still sin. So what should you and I do tomorrow? First thing I want to do, I'll give you three practical tips. First thing is I want to talk about orientation. See, when, uh, when we have a sin mindset, don't sin, you and I are often trying to find the edges of where's sin, right? How fast, how fast can I go before I'm actually speeding? Yeah, right? Right? Can I arrange my taxes in such a way, and that's still legal, I think? Is that, that's roughly right? If I put my, if I put my uh, holiday leave in, and it's got a little bit of sick, and it, it, it's probably, it's okay. I think it's okay. We're focusing on the edge here. How close to sinning can we get? That, that's an obsession with sin. What if we turn away from the edge of the cliff and we look to the glory of our God and we say a different question? What does righteousness look like? What would it look like for me to drive righteously? I don't know. What would it look like for me to engage with my taxes, to engage with my workmates, to engage with my family, to 
uh, care for my fiancé? What would it look like for me to do that righteously, pursuing righteousness rather than trying not to sin? Do you see the difference? Guys, there is freedom and joy here. There is only ever bondage and fear here. We need to be looking to Jesus and not to sin. Secondly, I think there's a question about obedience. You see, we can say, hey, hey Jesus, I'm trying really hard to obey you in this area. Don't look over there. It's going to be okay. Let me give you why that might be a little bit frustrating for Jesus. Okay, I'm going to, I'm going to mention some hypothetical children. Not connected to me at all, right? Hypothetical children. Imagine you went to school and you got a report that said, your kids are brilliant at school. They are so polite. And you go, I don't ever see that at home. They're, they're terrible at home. But they're lovely out. Everybody tells me what wonderful children I have. And at home I'm like, are these people on drugs? Like, Do you know that, anyway, in a hypothetical family, not your own, you've heard this problem, Right? As a parent, how do you feel? You go, why can't you be? And I think our Heavenly Father says to us, if you can make an effort of obedience there, why can't you make an effort of obedience here? Love me in all things. Don't just love me in selected areas. And so I want to encourage you, church, let's work hard at loving our God and obeying him. We need to be pleasing Jesus and not ourselves. The last thing I'd say is this thing I've been trying to practice, which is actually offering my day to God. It's been good. It's not a practice I've had for a long time, but I like it. If I start off thinking, actually, my life is in your hands, God, my day is your day, and instead of going, God, help me not to sin today, I turn around and I run towards God and I go, God, I'm at your disposal for the next 18 hours or whatever it is, 15, 10, whatever. I'm at your disposal. What would you have me do today? Guys, there is life there. Joy, hope, fulfillment, righteousness, holiness. Pursue it. It's brilliant. It's relationally rewarding. Whereas this is a lonely battle with not. This is walking with my heavenly Father. Yeah? We need to be presenting our lives to Jesus, not withholding them. So why all this? Why all this talk? Why don't I just say, don't sin, church, the end of the story, right? What if I just said that? I got up and said, don't sin. That's the moral of today's story and just sat down. That'd be cool, wouldn't it? Here's why we do all this. Here's why Paul wrote this. He believes that right understanding leads to right thinking. That right thinking leads to right living. There's actually something productive you've done today. You'll think about your life differently because you've joined yourself with the Jesus story. Because you're saying, I want to run towards my heavenly Father, not just struggle against sin. So today, I want to say to you, church, who are you? You are those who have died to sin. How can we live it any longer? Let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that there is hope for people like us who sin. We thank you that there's grace for people like us who were your enemies. We thank you, Father, that not only is there forgiveness, but you've prepared good works in advance for us to do. Father, help us to run towards you 
For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.